Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this week is Jonah chapter 1, verses 15 through 210. So this comes into the middle of the narrative of Jonah, and Jonah at this point has already been told to go to Nineveh. He has already refused to go to Nineveh. And the sailors who are with him have come to the conclusion that the only way they're going to survive is if they get rid of Jonah, who has made Yahweh very, very angry. And so they throw him into the sea. And that is where we pick up this narrative. And what I want you to note is that when Jonah prays in the belly of the great fish, the words that he used describe himself as if that fish is a grave that he is being delivered from. He's quoting a lot from Psalms, and in particular, a lot of Davidic Psalms, Psalms written by David about himself, or maybe even further, about a son of David who was to come. He talks about calling out of the belly of hell, about not letting his soul see corruption. And we see that even in this prayer, it is clear that the idea of resurrection from the dead is not foreign. The scripture reads, Jonah chapter 1, verse 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, and all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Good morning again. We can 
Go ahead and turn to Matthew 12, verses 38 through 50. Whether so we've come to this point in the book of Matthew. And we've really been seeing how the people, the generation around Jesus that interacted with him during his life here on earth, how they responded to him. And there are some things and some people who respond positively. Those who recognize their need. Those who are weary with sin, weary with curse, and are ready to accept that Jesus' rest for the weary is good. But the majority of chapters 11 and 12 is spent looking at the Pharisees and those who follow after them and how they are rejecting Jesus because they don't want to see. They don't want to admit their own need. And in regard to that, we even saw particularly last week how they're making this accusation about Jesus using the devil to cast out demons. And if they just took a little time to think, they'd know it was absurd. And it wasn't true. And so they've made themselves enemies of God by attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. And it's kind of in light of the danger that they're in and doing that, and a greater danger of simply not repenting before Jesus' words and Jesus' person that our text picks up today. And it starts in Matthew 12, verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Father, we do ask that you would help us to think about these words and all of this passage that we're looking at, and that we would not make any excuses, but would come to you, would commit ourselves to you, and would accept the need that we need in you every day, every hour, every minute, and even every second. Lord, use us, broken instruments, to communicate your glory and grace to each other and to those who are not present here. And may we respond evermore knowing our need for you and committing ourselves to your care and to strive to obey you. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. you follow at all in circles of apologetics or defending the faith, that aspect of people who, in seeking to show the gospel and evangelize to others, they look at and try to make intellectual arguments as well. They'll notice a little bit of a shift in discussion. The arguments that, in, that apologetics are using, they're not saying that they're bad. They're not saying they shouldn't be used. They've also started pointing out that sometimes the arguments that non-Christians are using, whether that just be atheists or otherwise, aren't actually the reasons they don't believe. 
sometimes like with the stake of what's going on with the uh, Pharisees in last week's passage, the arguments don't hold up. Sometimes they do, and sometimes that's part of the staunch defense. But sometimes, maybe more often than we think, they're not reasons for disbelief, but excuses. Excuses to find a way to justify the fact that they don't want to believe, that they don't want to commit to Christ. And that is what we're really seeing in this passage. The Pharisees, whether the same Pharisees that just blasphemed the Holy Spirit or different ones, are coming up with an excuse as to what needs to happen before they would believe and repent. And Jesus is pointing out it's just an excuse. It's not actually why. And they need to stop making those excuses and repent. And so do, of course, we. So we have three scenes. The first scene is Matthew 12, 38 through 42. And it's about the sign and a demand for a sign. And Jesus' argument is essentially, you don't need a sign because I'm greater than anything else. So the demand in verse 38, then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. So here they are, and they're saying the reason we haven't believed, or they're implying the reason we haven't believed is that we haven't seen enough from you. We need something like a sign. We need something that will give a demonstrable proof that you are who you say. Because clearly the signs Jesus already has given weren't enough. The very fact that he cast out a devil, which has to be attributed to the Spirit of God, is not enough for them. Or as the section of Matthew 11 through 12 even kind of began in Matthew 11, 21 through 24, the miracles that Jesus has done throughout his life of cleansing the lepers, making it so they no longer had the skin disease, healing the many who are sick, raising people up from the dead, healing from a distance with just a word, all of those things should have been enough. And Jesus himself says so. In Matthew 11, 21 through 24. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you would have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. They should have known. They don't need another sign. And so it's not surprising that Jesus responds in this way. 
Verse 39. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Though signs are not of themselves bad, John organizes his entire gospel around different signs Jesus did that demonstrate that the Messiah that was longed for, awaited, was him, Jesus of Nazareth. But he says that the very fact that they seek for a sign is an indication, is a sign, if you will, that they are an evil and adulterous generation. And the reason for that seems to be exactly the fact that they already should have been seeing the signs that were there. And so to demand another one is them demanding only to go according to their own tune. We read Matthew eleven twenty one through 24. If we skip just one, just one section above, Matthew eleven sixteen 16 through 19 explains an evil generation like this. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned for you, and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath the devil. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. It's an incongruity in the illustration Jesus gives. There's children talking to one another, talking about how they played this very joyful noise, and the other children didn't dance. And then they, they played this very lamentful, this very sad noise, and they didn't cry. Whether it's the children that are doing the music or the children that are dancing that is comparing to the generation, the point is they'll only do what they want. They want to have it their own way. They're going to dance to their own tune and nothing's going to stop them. Therefore, they're going to demand a sign on their own terms. And Jesus is going to deny them. And say, you need to accept me on my terms, not on yours. Because ultimately, if we accept Jesus on the terms we provide, we're only accepting ourselves, not him. If we only will follow Jesus at points in which we're already inclined to agree with him, we're not following Jesus. If we're going demand a sign, or demand this, that, and the other in order to fully believe, we need to stop making our excuses and come to Jesus wholly for all of who he is. But there was a but in verse 39. Just because they haven't seen the signs so far doesn't mean Jesus is done giving them signs. It's just still on his terms, not on theirs. And so we read again in verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it 
but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So there is one sign coming, and it's the sign of Jonah. Sign of Jonas. And the sign of Jonah is twofold. Two different aspects of that sign. In fact, in Luke, we only get one aspect of the sign of Jonah, and it's not probably the one you would expect. But it starts with the one that at least I have long associated with the sign of Jonah, and that is the pattern of deliverance. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And as we read in our scripture reading, he likens that, he compares that to being in hell, being in death, being in Sheol, it's more accurately the grave, but being in death and being brought out. And just as he was in the whale's belly for three days, so too Jesus is in the heart of the earth, in the grave, dead for three days and three nights, but just as Jonah not staying in that grave, but coming out. And of course, it's a greater situation than just what happened with Jonah, because Jonah didn't actually die. It was a figurative grave. But Jesus does actually die. He does go into a literal grave, is buried, and rises again three days. But the main part of the sign of Jonah is actually the second part. It's the part that's similar to Matthew 11, 21 through 24, that if these mighty works had been done in this other city, they would have repented. The sign of Jonah is the fact that the Ninevites responded to Jonah's preaching, even though Jonah was a preacher who didn't want to see fruit. He wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. He complains after they aren't destroyed to God, asking, why did you not destroy them? Why are you being gracious to them? And yet in verse 41, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. And Jesus is greater than Jonah because he desires people to come to him. Unlike Jonah, he doesn't want wrath to be the final word. When he preaches and says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he means it, desires it. And so the men of Nineveh rise up in judgment condemn the generation who saw Jesus and did nothing because they should have repented and they should have known. And we do know, we really, really do know that this is Matthew's main point in the sign of Jonah as well because he double-clicks on it. He explains it more 
by looking at a sort of sign of Solomon, worked out in the same way. Verse 42, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Now we talked about more of the bad side of Solomon in Sunday school recently. How he did have the downfall late in his life. But the Queen of the South, she doesn't come during that time. And as Jesus here points out, she comes to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And that wisdom is unparalleled. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon is at this point in time just getting the kingdom. And the Lord is speaking to him and saying, you can ask for anything. What do you want to ask for? And it is presented that he had the chance to ask for lots of selfish things, long life, riches. But instead he looks at the people and he says, I want to lead them well. And so he asks for wisdom. And God grants it. And this is what then is said in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12. The Lord speaks to Solomon and says, Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all the days of thy life. But if we, we listen closely to 1 Kings 3.12, Solomon is given a wise and understanding heart, such as there was none like him before, and none would arise after. Among mere men, there is no one wiser than Solomon. So if we are particularly in Matthew 12, looking at Saul, the Queen of the South coming to talk to Solomon for his wisdom, to hear his wisdom, that among many a man is unparalleled. And in that context, Jesus is going to apply to himself and say, a greater than Solomon is here. Then his claim is to be no mere man, but rather the divine Messiah, who in Isaiah 11.1 1 is given the spirit of wisdom. Or if we take, as I think we should, Proverbs 8 to be a reading of the Messiah, the embodiment of wisdom itself. He's come as divine wisdom in the flesh, who through him all things were created. And so he is God. The Queen of the South then can come and condemn. 
Because she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but this generation is despising the wisdom of the greater Solomon, the greater David, the one who is wisdom itself. Their excuses will not work. Our excuses won't work either. Jesus has done enough to demonstrate who he is that every single one of us has no reason, no excuse not to come to him in repentance and trust. Not trusting in anything we do, but trusting in him. Trusting in the fact that he took our sin upon him, that he died, and he rose again, offering that hope to all. But it doesn't just end there. Jesus keeps speaking. And the second scene we look at is verses 43 to 45, and it's a parable. It's the danger of rejecting Jesus and his revelation. It's the danger of rejecting this greater knowledge that Jesus has given. And it's not quite to the extreme of the blasphemy of the Spirit idea last week. But let's, let's read it and think through it. So the parable itself is fairly long. Um, it says this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from which I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So I, I know that just reading that raises lots of questions about how demons work. And I don't think this passage gives us enough information to answer those questions. I don't intend to dabble in demonology today. But the parable itself is fairly clear, especially in light of the fact that casting out of a demon, an unclean spirit, was the, the background for all of the conversation so far in this chapter. We look at the illustration of what happens when a demon is cast out. He goes into a desert. He looks for rest, but he finds none. And as he looks for rest and can't find it, he's like, well, right until the very end, my prior home was actually pretty comfortable. Maybe I'd get lucky and I could go back and find that to be comfortable again. So he returns. And he finds it empty. He likes that part. He finds it swept and garnished. It's cleaned up. It's not clear, but I would think that he probably doesn't like that part. But all the same, he sees an opportunity. And so he seizes the opportunity by grabbing seven other spirits. 
And every last one of them is more wicked than himself and will do more harm to the man than the one did. So you can really see that the state of this man is indefinitely worse than the first. He went from one demon to eight demons, and the seven demons he added were all worse than the first. And then, with that story said, Jesus applies it. Even so, shall it also be unto the wickedest wicked generation. Their last state would be worse than their first. There seems to be some elements to say that they've been freed from some demonic influence, though they themselves were not demon-possessed. There is the reality that Jesus coming and revealing himself has freed them. And even verse 29 implies this more directly. Or how else can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. But it still leaves a bit of a question. What is the point? How is it worse? What is it, the result of it being worse? Why is this such a significant warning? But I am grateful that Peter interprets it for us. Turn to me to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 20 to 22. Peter quotes that particular line of the last state being worse than the first and explains it in light of people who are in the church but not actually Christians and how they respond and how their state is worse when they ultimately turn away. So 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22, reads like this. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Peter says, if people start escaping from the pollutions of the world, they start through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which I would take at this point to be more intellectual knowledge than personal knowledge, if they take it in their mind to know who Jesus is 
And they begin then to escape from the pollutions of the world because they have the opportunity to repent and trust themselves to him. But then they don't and reject it and continue living in a sinful way. The latter end is worse than the beginning. Like a dog who returns to his own vomit, throws up, doesn't think anything of it, and goes right back to eat it. Or a pig, who always likes the mud, finally gets cleaned and decides to go wallow in the mud again without even thinking about it. So too, though they knew what the righteous way was, they turned from the holy commandment. And it would have been better for them not to have known. So too in Matthew 12, the Pharisees, the generation, they have reason to know who Jesus is. They have every reason to trust him and accept him. And even those who are trying to stay on the fence and haven't yet put themselves directly against God are in worse state if they don't repent, if they don't turn. Here's the the really great part about this, though. It is a, a worse state, and it is a precursor to the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is said to be unforgivable, because at that point, repentance isn't open to you. You've already shunned it. But this is us, the precursor to it, and with it, there is still hope. Being given the gospel message and not immediately responding to it does not make someone forever unsaved, unbelieving, and never having another chance. Any of you who would fall into that boat today have the opportunity to turn, to repent, have the opportunity to come to faith in Jesus, to know that his death pays the penalty for our sin, and to have that hope, and that hope alone, as we go through the rest of our lives. seem it would seem at this point that we'll look more at verses 46 to 50 next week and understand a little bit more about how they color what the repentance and turning specifically looks like But what we should have seen so far is that because Jesus is greater than Jonah, because Jesus is greater than Solomon, because Jesus is greater than the temple, as has previously been said in chapter 12, greater than David, greater than anyone else, 
because of the mighty works he has already done and the fact that he died and rose again, we have ample reason to trust him. And we're left without excuse to not turn to him in repentance. Not to turn to confess our sins, admit that we are sinners, admit that we need his help and his help only. And repent and believe and commit to living for him in obedience to him in every possible way. So if you have not done that today, do it. Talk to us. Talk to anyone here. Talk to me. Let us have the opportunity to show us what that show you what that looks like and how you can have life eternally. Father, we do thank you that we have enough reason to trust you and your son. We are grateful for the reminder that that is our only hope. And we are warned of the danger of taking that hope and sitting on the fence, not making a decision with it. And we ask that none of us in this room would do that today, but that we would come to understand you your good kindness and good grace. And so, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church, do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>